Hey, welcome. In about 10 minutes, Dave Rowland is going to be with us. He's going to talk about Josh Hawley and his proposal for a legal age for social media. Uh, an appeals court rules live streaming police at traffic stops, whether or not it is protected. Uh, federal court strikes down gun ban for people who use marijuana. That's interesting. Uh, then uh, going to uh, my old neck of the woods, the city I grew up in, Cleveland Heights. Apparently some guy built a, uh, a, a pizza oven in his backyard and his neighbor said, uh, you got to pay us $25,000 because we can't live with the smell of that wood burning. Uh, and then uh, there's a couple of other cases, including uh, one about the Super Bowl uh, and uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So we'll get to all of those in just a short time. But right now, quick question. Do you think it should be illegal for the FBI or any other government agency to contact a social media page like Twitter or Facebook and ask them not to publish or promote something? Do you think there's something illegal involved in that? Now, I would argue that it would be illegal if there was an implied threat. And the implied threat can be as little as, you know, we're looking at regulating you guys. I'm not sure if it's going to come up or not. By the way, I hope that you uh, don't publish blah, whatever it is. Do the right thing. Yeah, I, I would say that's an implied threat, and that takes away my freedom of speech. But what if they just contact these pages and ask them not to do it, and they agree? Is there something illegal about the government doing just that? 874-9390-800-529-5572. Brian, do you think there's anything inherently illegal in that? I don't know if it's illegal or not, but, I mean, they've done it already, haven't they? Yeah, I uh, mean, and nobody's being charged with anything. Well, I think I mean, this, still... com this company is a private company. They can do what they wish if they, you know, want to be uh, kind of coerced by the government to do what they say. Well, the I House mean, is holding hearings right now. I know. And we don't know what the outcome of those hearings might be. Maybe they'll, you know, recommend something to the Justice Department. <laughs> the Justice <laughs> Department under Biden. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, nothing like a mouse there. in charge of the cheese, right? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't think anything will happen there. Um, so I'm not sure, ultimately, uh, that it is against the law. I do think that it is wrong. I think they should stay out of it. Uh, can you think of a case where it would be warranted? I mean, what if they know that publishing something will cause a riot? What if uh, Black Lives Matter or Antifa uh, want to spread the word about uh, burning down the police station in uh, Arkansas somewhere? Could, you know, would that be wrong for them to say, please don't, don't let that spread? Uh, cancel them. I mean, this is the sole reason why they wanted to have this government disinformation board or whatever they were calling it is to monitor posts from certain individuals to make sure that they weren't spreading information to prevent people from believing what they read, as if, you know, you're too stupid to determine it on your own. Well, you know, here's, here's what um, 
my observation here is that you should never restrict speech. Private marketplace has the right to do it. I'm yep. not denying that they have the right to do it. They Even do. if it's false. But I, I think the cure for bad information is good information. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you don't like what's being said, pipe up and say something to the contrary. Have a back and forth. I don't uh, think they like that back and forth. Well, you because know, there's only one way to think, and it's their way. The I mean, like climate change, for example. Yeah. They silence anyone who doesn't toe the line. You remember how long that 97% of scientists agree was put out there, and, I mean, everybody believed it. It's like, yeah, 97% of scientists have already concluded that global warming is real. Yeah, for and they're people, still talking about it today. For people who don't know, there was a questionnaire sent out uh, to these uh, scientists, and they said ninety-seven percent of scientists agree that you know anthropogenic global warming is a problem. What they didn't tell you is they sent out thousands of these requests for opinions, and only got relative few responses. So it couldn't possibly reflect. Um, what the majority of scientists, environmental scientists, believe. But they made it sound like that. And I've debated with global warming advocates uh, who use that statistic. They throw that around like it's real. Like, you know, hey, this is, this is the consensus. A science is settled. Yeah, and consensus, by the way, is not necessarily accurate. I mean, historically, when you look back at, at, uh, at history of the world, there was consensus on a lot of things that turned out to be wrong. Uh, there were uh, uh, scientists uh, who were literally killed because they disagreed uh, about whether or not the earth revolves around the sun or the sun revolves around the earth. And there was all kinds of uh, uh, different opinions that the consensus agreed with, but ultimately turned out to be wrong. The solution isn't to silence them. You know, and I don't have a problem with them talking about global warming in science class in school. They should talk about it. But they should talk about both sides of it. They should let, let students hear the other side of the coin. And they don't do that. I'm sure in some cases they do, but in most cases they don't do that. And so kids walk away thinking this is settled. It's it's real. And it not only has them believing it, it has them terrified. These kids are actually afraid that the world is going to come to an end. It's Armageddon. We're all going to cook. And and now you end up with all of these, uh, you know, extremist environmentalists who are sitting down in the middle of busy roads or uh, who are throwing uh cans of soup at valuable artworks in museums because they want to they want to be heard they're reacting to what they've been taught and they haven't been taught both sides and i think that's it it really is it's the way the left work they don't want both sides to be heard and i think it's out of fear that they'll lose when people hear the whole story changes their mind. So restricting speech, whether it's Facebook or Twitter, uh, 
it is a is a poor idea. Let the other side have their say. And I think when that happens, uh, we're in a much better place. Dave Rowland is uh, going to be on board with us in just a couple of minutes on the Gary Nolan Show, Think Tank Thursday, the Zimmer Radio Network. 19 minutes after 11 on a, on a, a Think Tank Thursday, Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org, on the uh, Gary Nolan Show, a brilliant uh, constitutional uh, and conservative, I would argue, attorney. Uh, the uh, first story on the list here uh, deals with Senator Josh Hawley. Who is, for me, uh, frankly, Dave, kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes he does things, and I think, way to go. And other times he does things, and I go, where did that come from? Um, yeah. And yeah. this legal you age... Know, it's, it's funny, Gary, um, because I saw in my Facebook memories, uh, I believe this morning, that I cautioned six years ago, right after Josh Hawley took office as Attorney General in Missouri that um, he didn't seem to be living up to his reputation as a constitutionalist because that's what he ran on. You know, he, he ran on the idea that, you know, he was a former Supreme Court clerk and he taught constitutional law. And so he was going to be this big defender of the Constitution. But then you get things like, you know, him proposing an age limit for social media, you know, that the government knows better than, say, parents um, at what age it would be appropriate for their children to get involved in social media. And I just I don't even understand how he could conclude that this is remotely constitutional. Um, it's certainly not indicative of any sort of belief in limited government. And that's that's kind of been my um, my problem with Josh Hawley ever since the beginning of his political career is is that. One would expect from the way that he talks that he would understand and pursue policies that limit the power of government, but almost every day he's coming up with some new government solution that tries to control the decisions people get to make for themselves, or in this case, for their children. Um, and I just think that that's, that's a huge problem. Um, I also think it's a little bit ironic, and, and Gary, you know, we've talked about this before, about this idea of there being inconsistency about how we handle um, young people and when they are believed to be able to make decisions for themselves. Um, you know, just this last week, the Missouri General Assembly was considering a bill that would restrict um, young people's ability to carry firearms. And the Democrats have been making a very big deal about the fact that this at the same time that Republicans are basically acknowledging that young people still have Second Amendment rights, um, that the Republicans are also trying to say young people shouldn't be allowed to go to drag shows. Right. And there's there is an incongruity there. There's you know, it does not make sense that the Republicans would understand limits on government and individual liberty um, in this one arena, and yet they would turn around and strive to impose restrictions on it in this other arena. Uh, now, are they and, actually um, saying, wait, wait, are the Republicans actually saying that it should be against the law for a minor to go to a drag show? My understanding is that is a proposal that's been put forward, is, is that they are trying to restrict 
young people's access to drag shows. They would be treated as though, you know, there's there's like a, a an age restriction being imposed. And and I believe one of the proposals was that it would be unlawful to allow children to be exposed to these things. Now, that may be a misunderstanding of the policy. I know that that has been discussed in other states, and my understanding was that that was something that was on the table in Missouri as well. You know, if they prohibited um, schools from bringing, uh, uh, bringing kids to these events or something along those lines... I might be able to to see some kind of restriction there, but even that's a bit vague. I just think yeah, morally we should be able thing, to. Yeah, it's one thing to establish a policy saying, "All right, we are not going to allow our schools to expose children to certain material." That is a policy decision that I think the government is allowed to make for its schools. Um, the problem comes when. You're no longer talking about the government saying this is what the policy is going to be for our schools, which we run and control, and saying we are now going to impose a policy that's going to bind individual citizens in their decision-making abilities for themselves, completely unrelated to these schools that the government runs. Um, you know, that's the, that's the distinction, the crucial distinction between government choosing on a policy that it's going to pursue for itself and government imposing its own moral values on individuals. And the latter is a very significant problem. Um, we got a whole bunch of other stories here that I want to get to. I want to go to the one in, in Cleveland Heights because I, I grew up there uh, and I know I'm familiar with the street where this allegedly happened. But... Apparently, uh, this couple built a pizza oven, and it's been a five-year battle over a pizza oven? Up to six years now, yeah. You know, hey, well, this is the thing. is Some people get really, really angry about what their neighbors choose to do with their property. And so some of the neighbors went to the city and complained uh, about this pizza oven that this, this couple had put in their backyards. And so the city says, oh, well, we think this is a nuisance. And so we're going to come in and we're going to require you to uh, tear down the, the pizza oven. And uh, after, after a six-year battle, um, a jury decided, no, this isn't a nuisance at all. Um, and in 20 minutes. Really not- yeah, right. Yeah, it was. It, it, they didn't deliberate long. Um, I mean, it's it's basically the same thing as as somebody having a smoker in their backyard and and you know making barbecue in their backyard. Um, you know, maybe the neighbors don't like the smell of it, but that's just you know that's that's part of living in a neighborhood. Is every once in a while you're going to be exposed to things that maybe are not ideal for you. What if your neighbor likes to go out on their back porch and smoke a cigar, and the smoke wafts across the property line? Well, you may not like it, but it's not a nuisance, right? Um, it, it doesn't legitimately interfere with your enjoyment of your property. Um, and thankfully, the jury. Uh, the jury in this Cleveland Heights area decided that uh, they they weren't going to stand for this. But it, again, it's it's this NIMBY problem, you know, this idea that that people should be able to control what other people do on their property. And this is just one of the ridiculous lengths to which government has gone, or at least cities have gone, um, to try and extend their control over over people's private property. 
it's um, it, it, I would love to have a pizza oven in my bag. You know what? I'd like my neighbor to have one too, so I could go over there for pizza. Yeah, um, only if they were willing to invite me over for it. <laughs> Otherwise, lawsuit if, if, time. If they, yeah, if they weren't going to invite me over for it, well, then I complain that they weren't uh, that they were discriminating against me, Gary, and the government should get involved to uh, to force them to to bake me a pizza. These are some pretty good sized houses too. Pretty nice neighborhood. Uh, all right, uh, we we can't stop there. We've got so much more. Uh, that you have sent us, including an appeals court ruling on live streaming the police. I've never had a burning desire to do that, but I suppose if I saw them doing something that I questioned, I might. Uh, and I've seen news stories, reports of people being arrested for, you know, filming or live streaming the police in action. Tell me what happened here. Yeah, so this is a follow-up to a conversation we had back in December uh, because the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals was considering this case, and they had the arguments in December. Um, you know, a guy had gotten pulled over, uh, and he thought it was really suspect. He didn't think he had done anything really wrong, and so he started live-streaming um, the, the, his encounter with the officers that pulled him over, and they said... No, you can't do that. You've got to turn your phone off. Um, so the question was, is there a First Amendment right to live stream an interaction with the police? We've had several courts come along, uh, federal appellate courts, and say, you do have a First Amendment right to record something that can later be shared. And the argument, which was persuasive to the federal district court, the trial court here, was, oh, but that's different from streaming something live. So the, the rulings that applied to recordings that would be replayed later doesn't necessarily bind um, this situation where you were live streaming. Well, the Fourth Circuit has handed down its opinion, and let me point out, they did it pretty quickly. Um, it's only been two months since they heard this case, and uh, normally it takes a federal court of appeals, say, three to five months to hand down a decision in the case. The fact that they handed this down in uh, roughly two months shows that they didn't have much trouble deciding the case. Um, and they said, yes, you do have a First Amendment right to live stream interactions with police. However, our old friend qualified immunity popped up. And uh, so although the government violated this man's First Amendment freedoms, um, he doesn't get to recover anything against the officer who committed the violation because of qualified immunity. So it's it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. You know, we, we now a, have. Oh, go ahead. Well, was, it's not exactly a pyrrhic victory. I mean, they they did decide no, that you can't stop victory. them, but at yeah. the same time, no relief for having gone through it all. Yeah, basically what this does is it sets the table for future cases. And one thing I'll add, in many of these qualified immunity cases, the court refuses to address the constitutional issue. They refuse to say whether it's constitutional or not. They just say, well, it hasn't been clearly established. Here, at least, they said, this is unconstitutional going forward. That's, that's a plus. So the next cop that does this gets in trouble. Right. All right, quick break. We're going to be right back. Dave Rowland, federal court striking down a gun ban. Next. This is The Gary Nolan Show.
This is a big, uh, big case, and so I'm, I'm really excited to talk about it with Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. Uh, gun ban for marijuana users. Uh, what happened? Yeah, so this is a situation where um, police officers stopped a guy for rolling through a stop sign and um, discerned that he had marijuana in the vehicle and he also had a firearm in the vehicle. And so there were no indications that he was actively under the influence of drugs. Um, he, there's no evidence that he was impaired in any way. And so they were prosecuting him under a federal law, um, that basically makes it illegal to possess weapons. If you, um, also were in the possession of drugs or have been in the possession of drugs. And, um, he was arguing that this federal law that they were relying on is unconstitutional. You can't. Um, you can't prohibit someone from exercising their right to keep and bear arms for defensive purposes simply because um, they might be a medical marijuana patient. And this decision that was handed down by, um, by a federal district judge, uh, number one, it's actually really well written. Um, you know, sometimes judicial decisions are kind of dry and and they're like slogging through concrete to try and read. Um, this is a really well written opinion, although it is kind of lengthy. It, it runs, I think, 54 pages. Um, but the judge takes very seriously the type of analysis that the U.S. Supreme Court has said you're supposed to apply in Second Amendment cases now. Um, and so the government, and this is this is the U.S. government that was making these arguments, the Biden administration that was making these arguments, said, well, what we're supposed to look for now is historical analogs for the modern regulations. And if the government can show these historical analogs, then they've got at least the possibility of justifying a restriction on the right to keep and bear arms. And so the government puts forward as their examples uh, these colonial era and then early republic era laws that restricted slaves, Indians, Catholics, and British loyalists from possessing firearms. And they argued, you know, the government historically has been permitted to restrict access to firearms for what they deem to be untrustworthy classifications of people. And so they're saying if the government has determined that uh, drug users like medical marijuana card holders um, are untrustworthy persons, then that justifies the regulation. That was the argument the government was putting forward. And the judge says, well, yes, clearly you have identified historical analogs, but no one would think that these restrictions are legitimate today. Like, what you have are clearly racist and religiously bigoted laws that were used to punish disfavored groups. And there's no way that anyone would consider that those to be legitimate laws today. And the judge also pointed out the 
the irony that in a number of different jurisdictions, right after the Constitution had been adopted, you saw laws being passed that very definitely violated the Constitution. Frequently we talk about, um, in the free speech arena, about how Congress very quickly after the ratification of the Bill of Rights adopted the Alien and Sedition Acts that basically made it a criminal offense to criticize government officials. Absolutely violated the First Amendment. No way it's consistent with the First Amendment, and yet it is, you know, a historical analog that someone could look to to say, oh, well, you know, they thought this was okay. Well, no, not necessarily. They didn't. The law was on the books, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was constitutional. And that's what the judge ended up saying here is is you cannot um, rely on the fact that historically they passed laws to prevent certain groups of people from possessing firearms and pretend that that is somehow legitimate when what they were really doing was discriminating against people on the basis of race, religious um, affiliation, and in the case of British loyalists, um, their political leanings. God, so you go down, I think this is a, you go down go to some of the southern states and argue uh, historically the Ku Klux Klan got uh, gun restrictions uh, to prevent blacks from uh, shooting back when they went to hang them. Uh, right. Well, or you could you could also make the argument, well, if we're going to talk about what things that were historically acceptable, clearly segregation laws were historically acceptable even after the adoption of uh, the Civil War amendments because states all over the place started imposing segregation laws and laws that disfavored African Americans. Well, no, no, that doesn't mean that that all of a sudden segregation is constitutional again. Absolutely not. Well, I, I've got a question um, and, for you, though. It, sure. Because when you fill out the 4473, the NICS check to buy a firearm, they ask you, uh, and in, in fact, because so many states have legalized medical marijuana, et cetera, uh, you know, if you're a user, so can a pot smoker today who has a medical marijuana card, for instance... Filling out that NICS check, say no, and and uh, and or think, or even say should, yes and still get their firearm. I think they should decline to answer the question. I I don't think I don't think they can say I don't think they can false statement uh, out there. That's that's a problem. That it, that it gets yeah. That would be uh, yeah because it's but a sworn they could statement. argue they could argue that um, requiring them to divulge the information is unconstitutional. They could argue that. But even if they admit that they smoke marijuana, uh, under this ruling, wouldn't that you know hold them harmless? Um, under this ruling, yes. Now, the, the big question is, this is just a trial court decision, and it's almost certainly going to be appealed, and it's going to be appealed into the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, and so now we have to watch and see, what does the Tenth Circuit do with this? Um, and I don't know. The Tenth Circuit is is kind of a mixed bag, and so I'm not sure that they're going to agree with this trial judge. I do think it's a very well well considered, well written opinion, um, and of course I agree with the outcome. Uh, but there's no guarantee that the Tenth Circuit will also agree. Uh, and then we have to see what happens in other states or in other other circuits. 
So I think ultimately this is likely going to be an issue that gets in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, and boy, that will make for a very interesting case if and when it gets up there. You know, you know, I've been I was raised in the bar business and I know what happens to a lot of people when they drink. And I've known a lot of people that smoke pot, and I know how they act when they're on pot. And I will tell you right now, I would rather a pot smoker have a firearm uh, <laughs> than an alcoholic. Well, and let me point out that there's there's also a huge difference between saying that someone is not permitted to handle a firearm while they are actively under the influence of a substance and saying that someone is categorically excluded from being able to possess a firearm because occasionally they might use a substance. Like, these are two very different concepts. It's like saying um, if if you drink alcohol, you're never allowed to drive a car ever, regardless of whether whether you're under the influence or not. Um, You know, and... I, I do agree that the government has the legitimate authority to punish people for driving under the influence because of the danger caused to the public by that operation. So I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with a law that, that says you are not allowed to possess a firearm while you are actively under the influence of a substance. Can you but say that in my that home? Entirely or, different. Well, would you say that in my home or would you say out in public? Certainly out in public. I, I do think it's a different analysis if we're talking about, you know, in the privacy of your own home. All right. Like, I've I, never don't, heard I don't think the government has a legitimate basis for, for even asking the question while you're in your own home. I've never heard of yo-yo car sales, but I'm going to find out about it in just a few minutes because Dave Rowland is going to explain it on the Gary Nolan Show on a Think Tank Thursday on the Zimmer Radio Network. It's 1150, and I had to look it up. Yo-yo car sales... Uh, ensnare buyers in bad deals. Uh, boy, that is an ugly tactic. Uh, so I will just briefly tell you what happens. You go in to buy a car, and the dealer says, uh, we got your finance, sign these papers, here are the keys, be gone. Uh, you drive the car for a couple of days, and the dealership calls you up and says, oh, the financing fell through. Uh, and then there are a couple of options. Bring the car back, pay more. Uh, change the deal or, you know, give me the, give them their money back. Uh, and this is apparently happening in a lot of places around the country. That's a pretty ugly tactic. And it's designed to get the salesman the commission and to make sure once, they, once they've walked in the door that they got a sale made. There, there's a, a saying in the car industry called a be-back. Uh, a be-back is somebody comes in, you sit down, you give them a price, blah, 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 and they say, well... I'm going to shop around. I'll be back. And they almost never do. They want to close that sale before you leave. And this is how they're doing it. Wow. Ugly tactic. Yeah. So it, it really is an ugly tactic. The question is, Gary, what should be done about this tactic? Do we want government solutions or do we want private solutions? So right now, the Federal Trade Commission, the government, is trying to come up with new rules that basically deny dealers, car dealers, the ability to use this tactic. And to be clear, this is written into the agreement that the potential buyers sign. They never Um, read it. What? They don't read it. That's right. Um, So... What the car company is trying to do, they are making this deal 
assuming that they'll be able to sell the financial arrangement to a bank or some other financial institution. Um, and with most of their sales, they're able to arrange that, that transaction. But this yo-yo sale comes into play when the dealer is not able to find somebody to purchase the deal, to purchase the contract. And that's when they go back to the, um, the purchaser and say, oh, whoops, the financing fell through. So you either need to give us the car back or you need to come in and agree to this different deal that is on far worse terms than we initially offered you. Um, so because it is actually written into the contract, um, I think the government shouldn't be getting involved. Uh, one of the things that the dealers point out is, look, if, if purchasers, if consumers don't like this, then um, they're always free to go somewhere else. Like, you know, a dealer could make it a selling point saying, we are not going to do this if you buy a car from us. Uh, and then the, let the market work, right? But as of right now, um, these dealers are saying, you know, no one is offering better deals than we are currently offering. And if people want to take their chances with us by signing this agreement that allows us to claw the vehicle back, that's on them, right? Um, and as much as I don't like it, as much as I think it's shady and underhanded, I actually think that's correct. I think that the, the best solution to this is for certain dealers to make it a selling point. Say, hey, maybe the prices are going to be a little bit higher if you come to us. But one thing we'll promise you is you're not going to run the risk of getting your car repossessed and leaving you hanging high and dry, you know, because we're not going to do this to you. I think I I'd find that an attractive selling point. Yeah, I would. That, that would make me think this is an up and up dealership. I can trust them. Uh, another, uh, and, and this is a personal recommendation, and I doubt that anybody will do it, but read the whole damn contract. Um, well, but yeah, I, I'm willing know, if, to bet that even attorneys. I'm, I'm right, willing that to, even attorneys might not, not might not necessarily read it. But if people are informed about this tactic, then they can defend themselves. When they go in, they can say, now I want to make clear, I am not agreeing to, you know, this kind of a buyback proposal. If I'm going to sign on the dotted line, you know, we're not going to have any of this. And if the dealership's not willing to agree to that, they'll walk away. Um, and, and so I think that the biggest thing here is making sure that the consumers are informed and then hopefully the market will provide options for them uh, that allow them to avoid this kind of underhanded tactic. But, but now that we want to let the market work. We don't want to let the government get involved and dictate how these private transactions have to be handled. But now that you know, because you're listening to the program, uh, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Uh, when you go to buy a car, ask them, if I sign this, is this deal done? Is there a chance you're going to try and bring this car back or raise the rates if you can't make a deal? Make sure you know. Absolutely. Uh, and that's... Right uh, and, huh? I said right on, yeah. Uh, all right. Let's head down to North Carolina Supreme Court. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, so, you know, one of the big Supreme Court cases, U.S. Supreme Court cases from this term, um, has to do with 
a North Carolina Supreme Court decision uh, that basically put limits on how the North Carolina legislature could handle uh, redistricting. And you listeners may recall hearing people talk about uh, the the uh, independent state legislature theory and and whether state courts have any authority over how a state legislature chooses to handle elections in that state. So this was a really, really big deal, but a funny thing happened. Um, North Carolina's Supreme Court is chosen through partisan elections. So the court that set up this question that the U.S. Supreme Court is dealing with was controlled by a Democratic majority. In the most recent elections, Republicans swept the seats that were up. And so now there is a 5-2 Republican majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court. And they said, you know what? We are going to reconsider the cases on which this U.S. Supreme Court case is based. And effectively, what that may end up doing is mooting the question. If the new Republican majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court decides they're going to reverse those cases, then all of a sudden there's nothing left for the U.S. Supreme Court to decide. And so this issue goes away, at least for now. It's possible that it might get up to the U.S. Supreme Court based on some other cases from other states, but this particular case, which has already been argued, would go away. So um, it's, you know, it, everything's at a little bit in a state of limbo right now. But, but Gary, one of the things that I want to point out is this is actually really bad from the perspective of confidence in the judiciary. Um, because, you know, we, we don't want our courts to be political. And it certainly looks like this is just a brazenly political move being made by the new majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court. Even if people like the outcome... Um, the process matters. And so it's, it's something to be concerned about going forward. So everything could flip again if there's a change in uh, the direction of uh, elections? Exactly. The law depends on who is elected uh, rather than, than judges uh, applying it in a nonpartisan manner. Out of time, Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. Dave, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Gary. All right, buddy. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby, honey, I'm coming home.